Enjoy and hope you have a great rest of your day. That was the tune Very Special by Duke Ellington, and you have um, the Very Special Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli. I have the pleasure of sitting in for T. Hetzel all summer long, summer of 17. So we're pre-taping a show today on June 13th, 2017 with Philip and Aaron Stead, who are together the author and illustrator of the Caldecott Award-winning A Sick Day for Amos McGee, Lenny and Lucy, and numerous other books, uh, together and separately. Um, welcome, Phil and Aaron. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, this is um, always my dream come true to be in the WCBN studio. Oh I love it goodness. down here. I really didn't know that. I'm glad I invited you. <laughs> Aaron, is it your dream as well, or is it Phil's? Uh, talking out loud is never really part of my dreams. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but I like both of you guys, so. I'm Thanks for talking here. out loud with us <laughs> on this warm Ann Arbor evening. I'm glad you're here. Um, so we have an hour together, and um, we're going to talk about books for children, and we're going to talk about how you make them, and what you've done, and a really exciting project that you have upcoming uh, to be released this September. Um, but first, I think I will read your official bio from your upcoming book, um, just so that our listeners know a little bit more about Phil and Aaron Stead. Um, I should tell you all that I already know you. So um, I think that's a good thing to say at the start of a conversation so people know that we've seen one another outside of this funny little room that we're sitting in tonight. Um, Philip and Aaron Stead are the author and illustrator of the Caldecott medal-winning A Sick Day for Amos McGee. Together, they also created the acclaimed Bear Has a Story to Tell and Lenny and Lucy. Philip and Aaron live in northern Michigan, and on a clear day, they can see Beaver Island. That might make more sense once we've interviewed for a while. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it makes sense. I think on its own, it, it works. Um, but you're Michiganders, yes? We are. Uh, yeah, we have been mostly Ann Arborites for most of our adult life, and more recently we've been living in northern Michigan. Um, but as a lot of people that live in Ann Arbor know, it's really hard to completely cut ties to this town, so we've been um, we've slowly making our way back to full-time residence in Ann Arbor. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I like to say that Ann Arbor is the uh, easiest town in America to move back to. That's probably right. Yeah. And uh, I did it in 2002. So yeah. I, it's, yeah. it's hard to meet a grown up in this town that hasn't mm -hmm. lived here on multiple occasions, left and yeah. come back. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. Well, we're glad you're here. Um, so I wanted to talk um, a bit about your work. I'm well familiar, um, both because I have a seven-year-old daughter who has been consuming your books for years and years, um, and because I enjoy them. So I wanted to talk about... Um, the idea that the books that you write and that you illustrate um, are really meaningful and really powerful for young people, but I think adults enjoy them equally, sometimes more um, than young people. So I would love to know from your perspective about audience. When you're making books, are you thinking about 
the youngest readers? Are you thinking about their parents or other adults? Erin <laughs> immediately turns to me in the radio studio, which means that nobody knows that she's not talking, cueing me to make <laughs> right. It's your, your turn <laughs> to say something intelligent. Um, we we don't think about um, audience as much as maybe some of our peers do. I think uh, there are people that that we know that really pay a lot of attention to making sure that things are absolutely appropriate for a six-year-old or a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old. Yeah, I think uh, for some picture bookmakers, they uh, tend to try their manuscripts or books out on uh, audiences or classrooms full of kids, and we really don't do that, Um, partly because I don't expect everybody to like my book, so I don't expect all children to like my books the way I wouldn't expect every grown-up to like my book. Yeah, uh, yeah. like an adult author never gets asked... um, you know, were you writing for 40-year-olds? <laughs> right. It, it's because it's a ridiculous question yeah. because 40-year-olds run the complete gamut of humanity, and I think that children do as well. Um, so the more appropriate answer is that we make books for a certain type of person, and that person can be seven years old, and that person can be... My age. Yeah, can be our age or could be uh, 70, year old, 70 years old. It really doesn't matter. It's just that something about what makes you you is sort of inherent in you from the start, and a certain type of uh, music, a certain type of literature, a certain type of art is going to appeal to you at, at any age. What I do really like about our audience um, is a certain honesty that exists in children, and that allows us to get to the heart of things in a way that appeals to me. A lot of times I'll be reading a book meant for um, you know, somebody my own age, yes. a grown-up, and I'll think, I could have done this entire book in 32 pages and said it more clearly. You could have and, gotten to the point, right? Right, yeah, <laughs> and that's what I really love about what we do is that we can really get to the point of something. We can say something directly um, in a way that is sometimes difficult uh, if, you're, if you're making things for... Um, Adults. Yeah, for, for grown-ups, for, for mm-hmm. people that have a broader vocabulary and a... a mm-hmm. You know, just a, a lot more experiences in their life to draw from. Yeah, I think we're trying to distill a really universal emotion with every book that we're making. Whatever little story we're trying to tell, uh, we're trying to keep it open enough for uh, anyone to relate to. Um, but some of that is is uh, simplifying what ends up being really complicated ways of being human so love and loss and everything else it's it's all just as valid when you're six as it is when you're 90 so right that's certainly been our family's experience of your books i have read my daughter many many books so is my husband and um yeah we don't experience every picture book the same way there aren't many that are as appealing to frank and i as they are to beatrix so um that's a great way to put it um i so again with um the kind of aspects and what I experience as kind of layers of a picture book, most picture books, and and certainly yours, um, I always think of the big ideas, there's always big ideas, but then there are, you know, there's the dialogue, there's moments of humor, there are the illustrations, all these things, and I wonder for both of you really, do you feel like you're very consciously kind of building those layers and adding on, or does it come to you in this like fully formed, like you know what it is, when you know what you know, and then it just is the work of getting it out. Does that question make sense? Uh, I think so. It's it's a tricky one to answer, but a lot of our books really arrived almost fully formed on day one, and it wasn't until months later or even years later that we really realized a lot of what 
was inherent in those books. Um, the best example would be A Sick Day for Amos McGee, which is um, by far our most read book. It's in 23 different languages. It's um, in It's been printed and reprinted and reprinted dozens and dozens of times. When we wrote it, we really thought we were writing just something for ourselves. We didn't expect it to be a book that um, would really make it into the hands of too many people. And because and that, it wasn't just us either. It was our publisher and uh, everybody who saw the book before it came out. It was an incredibly quiet book in a time where books weren't that quiet. And uh, my illustrations tend to be really light and a little delicate. Um, and so everybody kind of thought it was just going to be a sleeper of a book that nobody would pay that much attention to. But we liked it and we were all proud that we got to publish it. Yeah, it was a story... Um, and I feel bad saying this sometimes, but it was a story I just wrote in an afternoon. And I wrote it specifically to give Erin opportunities to illustrate things that I thought she would be really great at illustrating. So the core of the book are these um, scenes between an old man named Amos McGee and uh, different animals from the zoo. So he sits quietly with a penguin. He lends a handkerchief to a uh, rhinoceros that has allergies. He plays chess with an elephant and each one of these images was just something I sort of saw in my head that I thought Aaron would be um, particularly particularly good at illustrating um, so it really just wasn't I didn't see it as a big project I didn't see it as a big idea or anything that would be um, compelling to anybody but us and but the core at the core of the story was it's a story of um, compassion and kindness and Apparently, those those concepts really um, can hit a chord if you if you do something right, and uh, you can every now and then at this job accidentally do something right. And with that book, I think we did. Do you think that's it? Do you think that accounts for the many dozens of languages and all the the popularity of the book is that message of kindness? Uh, yes, in some part, in some other ways, I think it really was accidental. There's something very, very simple about that book, in part because I made it in, a, in an afternoon. Um, you say that, but you revised over the course of a year, and it took me 16 months to yeah. illustrate it. But the kernel of the book really did happen. It held, yeah, from that first day. And uh, so there's just something, I don't want to say iconic because it makes me sound like an egomaniac but there's yeah. something something in that book that we were able to do that we haven't been able to do since and it's the weirdest thing because it was one of our first books it was Aaron's first book it was my second book mm-hmm. and we really weren't sweating it we were we were just making just what we it. made yeah. yeah and then it just kind of took off and meanwhile since then we've you know we've put you know hours and hours and hours of thought into what we do and we've never really been able to hit that that same note that we hit with that book so there is something you know you put what you're going to put into a piece of art and then it gets handed over to to the next person in the chain who is either a child or a librarian or whomever and really they're the ones that complete the book and that's that's why we can never really predict when or why a book will be successful is because we're not um the final link in that chain does that make sense yeah yeah well it's also what makes our job so great i think um I, you know, I was in art school studying really fancy painting, and uh, I never really trusted the audience that I was making art for. I never felt like it was a, an even exchange, um, and I never understood why I was really making these these paintings um, for myself, because they, they felt 
they felt a little selfish. They felt like I was emoting, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, and I, I think with books, you have such a clear audience, and they're so honest, um, especially a, a kid's audience, that uh, it really helps make you feel like you know why you're making them most of the time. I don't. I also don't know exactly precisely what that thing is, but that book um, definitely has it. I was um, this spring. I was invited to go to one of our eight six Michigan partner schools, and they had like I think it was reading week or something, or I don't. I don't remember exactly, but they invited me in, and I read your book because we had some spare copies you donated, so we donated to this classroom of second graders at the Bog School, and I read the book. And I've been to that school many times, and we do lots of eight two six stuff. But I went to the school a month later, um, and two students said, oh, you read us a sick day for Amos McGee, <laughs> which I thought was so sweet. I mean, they they knew that um, even, you know, more than other experiences they might have had with me or um, it, it was it was good to see that uh, ex- that reaction. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your process of writing, but I think we should hear a song first. Maybe it'll be a song that I don't know what's queued up actually. Maybe Phil knows what's queued up, but maybe it'll be a song that you've... I can't remember, but I'll talk about it after we hear it. Okay, sounds good. So that was uh, John Henry, as played by Etta Baker. And uh, so when we're in the studio, um, you know, there are two halves to this job. There's the art making and there's the writing. And for me, uh, writing is the difficult uh, half of it. And it's the part that can be the loneliest. And it's the part that um, is the most difficult to find a soundtrack to while you're working. Um, It's really difficult to find things to write to um, if those things... It's, it's difficult to, to write to a song if it has lyrics or if somebody's singing, because um, those words start to bounce around your head while you're trying to come up with your own words. Of course. At the same time, some things that don't have lyrics can um, start putting you in not quite the right frame of mind. And I find that almost every piece that I work on has like one album or even just one song that I end up having to listen to over and over and over again because it strikes just the right tone and doesn't get in the way of the the synapses that have to fire in order to be writing. So actually the book that is coming out later this fall that we're going to be talking about, um, I listened to this album hundreds of times while writing it. There was something about the optimism um, and the pace. And the pace, um, and also the sense of Americana that was really important That's what I picked it. up on, is that Americana yeah. piece. A, a lot of times, um, 
an album that I'll write to, uh, or one of the musicians that I'll listen to is Jan Tiersen, who is a French artist. And that was just inappropriate for this project. It had to be something um, American, something Southern. And, mm -hmm. and so this one was perfect. Right on. This is the Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and I'm Amanda Yuli. Um, our guests today are Philip and Aaron Stead, and we're talking about picture books and and more. Um, that process of um, writing and creating. I'm fortunate enough to have some idea of um, where you create some of your work in your studio, but um, I would love to hear both of you talk a little bit more about. Um, the space that you're in when you're writing and when you're illustrating and, um, and just what it's like, you know, is it, is there always music on? Do you need silence? Is it like little bursts of activity and lots of thinking in between or what's it like? What's it like, Erin? Well, you go first actually, and I'm not doing that to be annoying. I'm saying that <laughs> because, uh, cause you write first most of the time, um, well, to set the scene, first of all, for yeah. the last few years, we've been uh, living in northern Michigan near Sleeping Bear Dunes, and uh, we renovated an old barn into a, an art studio. Um, so it's just a big, empty, and very quiet space. It's the first quiet space we've ever had to work in. Yeah, before we lived in Brooklyn, and we were making art in the living room of a one-bedroom apartment, or uh, we were living in Ann Arbor but probably in what was the loudest apartment in Ann Arbor um, <laughs> because we were directly across the street from the Amtrak station. And uh, it wasn't always the trains that was the loudest. It was actually the hospital traffic. Yeah, but... and the cabbies. Every night the yeah. cabbies would come at like, train station. At like yeah. 11 p.m. and they would fight because you had to get the perfect parking spot in order to get the best passengers off the train. Do and, you uh, have any taxi cab or train books? I'm just scanning my mind quickly. Uh, no there's, trains. There's trains and ideas. And ideas are all around. Trains are really difficult to draw. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So That's I've got good. a book about a boat, but you almost anything can be a boat. Okay. A train sounds like a big headache to me. Okay. <laughs> so no train books. So. Uh, so we work in an old barn. Um, when I'm working, sometimes I'm writing, sometimes I'm illustrating. When I'm illustrating, I can listen to almost anything, and I really, I like to keep it eclectic. It's one of the reasons I love WCBN. Um, <laughs> Aaron is much more particular, and so that is one of the rare things that we sort of butt heads on, is what's being played in the studio. Yeah, often um, we'll go and do book signings or librarian conventions or things like that for our job, and a lot of people ask, how do you guys work together? Because the truth is, is that Phil and I spend 23 hours a day together, just about. And um, a lot of older people tend to ask if we fight all the time, and we always think that that actually seems like a... Like a reflection on their relationship? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not so much on ours. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but that being said, the only thing that we ever have to agree on is music, because sometimes we'll, we'll be in two different moods, or if Phil is in one part of his uh, illustration process for his book, and I'm in the beginning part of, of mine, then I can't listen to words, um, but he can listen to anything, so we'll have to negotiate that a bit. Uh, Getting into the headspace to do this every day can be difficult. It's it's a great job. I I hate to complain about any aspect of what we do, but it is difficult to wake up every single day, and we tend to work at least six days a week and sometimes seven. Um, but to wake up every single day and have to create something from scratch can be uh, difficult because some days you wake up and you just feel very empty. And so I've learned to lean on certain um, musical crutches to get my brain going in the morning. So 
when we started the show today, we were listening to Duke Ellington. And that album, Money Jungle, is one of the ones I always put on in the morning because something about it just starts... Um, Your synapses. Yeah, like a little foot in my brain starts tapping. And if I just mm-hmm. kind of hang out long enough, by the time that album rolls over and starts playing again, I'm usually doing something. And getting into the studio, a lot of times, it's just about doing something. Um, having the courage to just put anything down on paper. Right. So music can do that. What about reading? I'm really interested about whether um, either or both of you read novels, read nonfiction, read picture books. While I'm making yes. a picture book, I read nonfiction. So it's a totally different thing. I have trouble reading fiction, particularly when you're in the beginning of a book and you're trying to figure out what the world is. Picture books are very strange little things because um, you have a limited amount of space to create a world. And... Uh, they require actually quite a bit of concentration. I think a lot of people don't realize it, but it's you have to answer a lot of questions within this a uh, very short time, um, and that requires some thinking. Yeah, um, within three or four pages, you have to have created a completely believable world that's compelling enough to have a person keep going. Um, in a novel, you can you can poke around for a hundred pages, and <laughs> yeah. you have that luxury. Partly because of your audience, your audience is is probably very literate and and along for the ride. Yeah, along for the ride and just killing time. And we we don't have that luxury. We have to um, everything has to be extremely tight in a picture book. And you know when you pick one up, and it's not extremely tight and it falls apart because either you or a child is going to put that that book down almost immediately. So so you read nonfiction. I, I read yeah I read about science. You do too. I have a really hard time reading at all. If you're writing, especially. If I'm writing, or even if I'm, I'm knee-deep in illustrations. Um, part of that is because I really like to read at the end of the day, but we often work until 10 and 11 at night, and then you pick up a book, and the book feels like work still. I find mm-hmm. myself editing other people's texts, mm-hmm. and, and so it's not relaxing. And so we end up, you know, it's embarrassing, but we watch a lot of really bad television. <laughs> um, now that you've said that, you need to tell what really bad television a lot of um, like cheesy sitcoms from the nineties. Yeah, I mean, the thing that puts us to sleep more than anything is Frasier. We'll, oh. watch, we'll watch that. And it's, and what's funny is that I don't even think we get past the theme music, and we're we're both done <laughs> for the done. day. Yeah. yeah, it's like a Pavlovian thing at this point. Yeah. Um, I would contend though that that show is actually very well written. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm not as I'm not as embarrassed of Frasier as not say, embarrassing. Yeah, Frank and I are on the Cheers DVDs right now. All right. Oh which wow. Is the, yeah. Of the same. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. Um, that's that's great to know. But yeah, you have to consume other media other than books maybe while you're creating. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, I end up feeling guilty all the time that I'm not reading enough. Um, luckily, it's pretty easy to keep abreast of what's going on in the picture book world. You can spend a long afternoon in the bookstore and, and read just about every new mm-hmm. book that's, that's worth reading. So that's a nice thing, is that we can keep um, up to date on what our peers are, are working on and um, sort of stay informed about what's new and, and what's exciting. It's not. I think it'd be really difficult to be um, like an adult fiction author and really try to stay up to date on what's going on in your all world. All the novels. Yeah, you have that. to. It's just yeah. hundreds and hundreds of hours of reading. I was going to say too that um, I don't think anybody who works in books feels like they're reading enough. I think it's just part of the the job description. 
The so, joys feel behind yeah, on reading. Yeah. yeah, that's probably true. Um, I want to talk about illustration a little bit, and this comes from my own kind of laughable skills in that department. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to ask you, Erin, if you have ever felt really daunted by something, either something Phil wrote or something that um, you had decided, uh, or a project that you were part of. Um, I'm so extremely impressed with the like, detailed animals and people and the precision that you you bring to your drawings. Do you ever... Um, Is it ever worrisome? I'm I'm laughing because poor Phil is probably sitting there thinking, well, she's daunted every day. Oh. Which is true. Um, I can't tell when I see the books. I, uh... Well, every illustrator has things that they hope to avoid. Oh, yeah, there are things that that you don't want to draw, for sure. And one of the funniest things that we both hope to avoid in all of our books is children. Oh, I don't want to draw children. (laughs) So there are very few actual children in any of our books. Um, yeah, why, that's true. Why are children hard, hard to draw? Proportions. They have big heads. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the other thing about uh, kids that I struggle with is that um, I really don't like the idea of cutting out any particular age, of making a kid in one of my books too young so that an older kid won't pick it up because they'll think it's a baby book. I mm-hmm. I don't believe in picture books being too young for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I think that's why I don't like pegging a kid in a book. It's, it's, it's easier to draw animals. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they're just a little more universal as far as how you can apply yourself to I think them. one of the reasons that A Sick Day for Amos McGee sort of became... Uh, Universal is because we didn't have any um, characters that were children. The The main character is an old man. And when we were first turning the book in, people at the publisher sort of warned us that because there were no children in this book, it probably wouldn't sell very well. This is before the movie Up came out. And um, I think we all learned a lesson about popularity with old men in, in children's <laughs> stories. But uh... Well, I would contend that, that children have no problem projecting themselves onto other characters. They do it constantly in their their own books with animals. So we give books to children that have animals as main characters and we don't think twice about it. So why would a child have any trouble putting themselves in the shoes of an old man or an old woman or just about anything in the shoes of a dish rag? I mean, I I believe very strongly in the capacity of children to use their imagination. um, Well, especially because they're not even sure what their own shoes are yet. They don't know yet. Right. So they're trying them all out. Right. uh, it's the grown-ups that have trouble with yeah. this. So we kind of... It's true. We may have accidentally cheated by adding a grown-up as our main character, <laughs> um, which may have helped in some ways with uh, any success that book had. I don't know. Um, but going back to your original question, it, it, it's easy to get daunted when your job every day is to um, make something from nothing. I, I think that, uh, you know... I, I, the problem with making your own work is that it's always your own work, and so it's you're not always impressed with yourself. And and thank goodness, because then I, I just keep trying to get better, um, and I can live with myself. I think if I was impressed with myself, I would be intolerable. <laughs> so um, uh, I love my job. I think I have the best job in the world. Um, but at the same time, it's uh, it's harder than I think... Uh, some people assume that it is um same with phil's job too phil also writes Mm -hmm. i don't write uh but phil's an illustrator as well and so he has it both ways Uh, i just have to draw so um 
I think we both worry about repeating ourselves yeah. as illustrators because you mm-hmm. do sort of... Um, you gravitate towards the stories you like. And certain tricks and um, yeah. even just how you compose a picture. Uh, there's a lot of just white space in our books. And that's because neither Aaron or I have any interest in scenery. And I had a, <laughs> I had a professor once tell me, if you don't... If you're not, if you don't care about it, don't put it in your picture. So a lot of times, uh, I'm figuring out how to avoid drawing the things I don't want to draw because I think people would be able to tell I don't want to draw this. Yeah, I think Aaron is excellent at drawing relationships, um, relationships between animals or between human and animals, human and humans and animals or humans yeah. and humans, and because of that, you know, we gravitate to stories that are really character driven um, and not necessarily about setting. Um, or scene, but you can start to worry, you know, if you've made a dozen books that you're a one trick pony. So I think that that does, those anxieties do pop up in the studio pretty regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, should we hear another song? Sure. Is this a good song break Mm -hmm. moment? Okay. Let's do that. What are we going to hear? I can't remember. We don't know. But I'll talk about it when it comes back Okay. And that was an example of something Erin might pick uh, to put on in the studio to get herself in in a headspace that's appropriate for art making. Yeah, I mean, that song is funny when you don't listen to the whole song because the first minute is basically just, it sounds like the orchestra warming up. Hmm. And I think that that's one of the appeals that's the opening to the, the album, actually. And, um, and I think so it makes my rusty brain feel like it's warming up and then we start plodding along in the song itself. And uh, specifically for the book um, with Mark Twain that, that Phil wrote, that I illustrated, that'll be out this fall, uh, that little pace of that song really helped me um, get into the right pace for illustrating the story. The story is, um, uh, it's a take on a fairy tale an American fairy tale was what we were trying to make. And um, I think Phil and I were both trying to look to American music. And uh, and that's that's how I ended up listening to a lot of Andrew Bird. Although we listen to a lot of Andrew Bird anyways. Yeah, there's something about just his 
his compositions and just the pace at which he plays that is really suitable to both of us. So it's one of the rare things that we can really 100% agree on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any time of day, too, for anything. So we might do four or five hours of Andrew Bird before I go ahead and turn on James Brown um, for the nighttime (laughs) work session. Power, yeah, power session. The power hour. (laughs) Since um, we've started talking about it, let's um, talk about the new book. Phil, do you want to give us a little, sure. like, how did it come about? And... So the new book, um, it's called The Purloining of Prince Oleomargarine, and it is an extremely peculiar project. Um, we co-wrote it with Mark Twain, uh, which is a weird thing to how say. How did you do that? Right. So I'm, <laughs> going, I'm going to tell you how we did he that. He didn't ask us to. <laughs> so about uh, just a little bit more than three years ago, we got a very bizarre phone call um, from our agent that said that Doubleday Publishing had contacted her and was interested in hiring us for a project, but they were not allowed to give us any information about it other than that it involved Mark Twain. They didn't have the project yet either. They were they were trying to get possession of this, this story or fragment of a story that they weren't allowed to tell us what it was. So um, we don't get phone calls like that really ever. So that was very strange. And we ended up just saying yes because we were... Um, the rule of the studio is usually, um, well, we'll say yes until we have to say no. Um, right. If something comes in, then we'll just, we'll, we'll follow it until we decide we don't want to pursue it any farther. So what we didn't know is that um, this story had sort of been brewing for a few years before it ever got to us. What had happened is uh, a researcher from Winthrop University, uh, who was a Mark Twain scholar, went out to Berkeley, California, Uh, to research a Mark Twain cookbook that he was hoping to write. So he was inside the uh, Mark Twain archive, and he had them pulling up any file that had anything to do with food. And there was this one file folder that was labeled oleomargarine. (laughs) So he opened it up, and inside, instead of finding like a recipe card or anything at all that had anything to do with food, he instead found um, notes, 16 pages of handwritten notes from Mark Twain, for a children's story that had never been finished. They, other scholars had known that this story existed. Um, there were diary entries and notations about how uh, Twain had told these stories to his children every night, uh, his daughters in particular, um, and how they were prompted and what the family scene was like every night. And, uh, and so people knew that this existed in some form, but... Um, I don't think any, I think it was Mr. Bird, or Dr. Bird who put it together. Yeah, this researcher from Winthrop, um, Dr. Bird, recognized the significance of it right away. And it was, um, these notes were believed lost. Well, the, actually, nobody knew that notes even existed. They knew that the, right. the story had happened, but it was believed to just be sort of like a story to- told orally that was gone the moment it was told. Um, he recognized immediately the significance of what this was. Uh, it's the only instance that's known of a children's story ever being put to paper by Twain. So eventually it, it falls into our lap, and our job became um, taking these notes and working with them to create a fully formed picture book, um, completing the writing and giving um, it an ending it had no ending it had no ending the, <laughs> the final page of notes was either missing or had never been written down at all i which he he did i tend to believe he he didn't finish it yeah um 
anybody that's read any Mark Twain will know uh, that endings weren't all that important to him. So anybody that's read Huck Finn knows that the the first third of that book is maybe the greatest American novel ever written. The middle third is largely mediocre, and uh-huh. the final third is one of the worst um, <laughs> piles of character trash. Character betrayals. I, yeah, character betrayals <laughs> in, in all of literature. Yeah. Um, so it's really um, not out of character for him to get rolling on something and then not complete it. So, Which I think anybody who makes anything can relate to. Sure. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not putting him down. I get it. So mm-hmm. we were given possession mm-hmm. of these notes, and and right away we were we just saw a lot of potential in what was there, and it really felt different to us than something that would normally be published posthumously. So it wasn't just you know a relic from 140 years ago; it was something that he had told orally to his own children, and we really felt that we could reinterpret it in that way as a piece of oral tradition, and it would be something that began with him, and we were now continuing the tradition. And potentially somebody could, um, you know, also work with it again. You know, it's it's not necessarily a static piece of art. It's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. I think it's um, it's almost unprecedented. I can't think of other books or projects to compare it to um, because, like you're saying, this is not, this was not a fully formed thing that he'd finished. That the publisher just said, "Well, let's." package it up and put it back on the world. Right. And we had always been, um, you know, in private conversations with ourselves before this ever even became a thing, we would be critical sometimes of books that were coming out that were printed posthumously. We always Mm -hmm. kind of questioned whether or not... um, They should ever be made. Yeah. We think about the things that sort of exist in our own archive, stories that we've discarded Mm -hmm. or... um, Just put away. We have a few that we've just put away because they're not, they're not ready. Yeah. And, and if we kick the bucket, they're still not going to be ready. Then you don't want them out there. No. Right. And, you know, there are authors like Margaret Wise Brown, who seem to have a new book out every six months. Um, or a more famous one more recently would be the new book by Harper Lee. She was not deceased, exactly. but um, there was definitely a lot of controversy about whether or not that book needed to exist at all and whether or not the fact that it existed took away from her masterpiece. Um or caused it to be seen in, in a light that was not as favorable. Right. Um, but something about this Twain project just really felt different because it really felt like... Um, it was a collaboration. It was a collaboration with a ghost. Yeah. Um, and it was very strange because it really did feel like we were working with a ghost. I mean, uh, Phil can get into that while he was writing. Uh, but me too, as an illustrator, there would be scenes where I would just think, Mark, why did you do this to me, man? <laughs> um uh, in his notes, or there would be passages that would just take too long, and, yeah. he'd, and Phil would have to figure out how to make the the pace of it. And the publisher really gave us freedom to discard things that we thought were uh, not important, or um, you know, tweak things if they weren't quite right. It was a funny thing to do because you take on this project, or someone asks you to take on this project, and 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 I've said before that no one's qualified to take on uh, a collaboration with Mark Twain. Uh, there's just not a person on the planet. But at the same time, if somebody asks you to do it, you don't say no. Um, you try your best. And so we would we would approach the project with a really great reverence for this literary icon. But at the same time, once we realized we had to work with him, he became a real human to us, too. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we would we would have to ignore the fact that he was Mark Twain and we'd have to make him Samuel Clemens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, true. And the mm. when we when I first 
got going writing it, um, it was really important to me that I not mimic Twain. I wanted to understand how he wrote and how he put a sentence together, but I didn't want to spend the next three years of my life trying to be him. Um, so I avoided reading, rereading any of his novels with the exception of Huckleberry Finn, which just felt like I had to. So I read that one, and then the real research that became important to me was reading Twain's uh, autobiographies. So his autobiography is actually another recent publication. He had stipulated he didn't want it published until 100 years after his death. So in 2008, the first volume of his autobiography came out, and it's about three and a half inches thick. And then a couple mm-hmm. years after that, the second volume came out. And then last year, the third volume came out. And what was so great about those um, autobiographies is that they were spoken, not written. So they were dictated. So I got to hear oh. his actual speaking voice and what he sounded like when he was just speaking off the cuff, which was certainly related to how he would write. But as you know, any person knows, you write and you speak in two different ways. Um, there's something more casual and more um, less considered about how you speak. And there's something natural that might link your written voice and your speaking voice together. But um, whenever you have the opportunity to edit as a writer, you'll start buffing out those those little um, you know mistakes in how you might speak. So that was really important to me because the the story was originally told off the cuff, and it was something that um, would have had all of Twain's idiosyncrasies sort of built in. Um, so discovering his natural rhythms um, really helped me as I was writing this to sort of find a middle ground between how Twain would speak and how I would speak naturally. It's interesting that you're talking about the middle ground, because as a reader, I really experienced it as something that was his and yours. I mean, I really saw the two of you in it, um, and him as well. I mean, it really felt like a true collaboration where all of you kind of come through. And I think it's a feat that you were able to somehow incorporate um, this very old text, fragmented text, right? Um, and make it a whole thing. One of the things that was most exciting to me working on it is that because I had Mark Twain to hide behind, I got to use his voice to say a lot of things that I would not necessarily be allowed to say in a book that was just by Aaron and I. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, little what dig, things, yes. like little digs and about um, you know what it means to be an American, and um, you know I sort of take a swipe at a few different times at, at the myth of what it means to be an American and what it means to grow up in this country, mm-hmm. and which is something that Twain was always doing in his own writing and his own speaking. Um, he was challenging concepts of um, patriotism and uh, religion, you know, all these things that sort of get mixed into the stew of of Americana were present in, in all of Twain's writing. And those things are interesting to me, too, but I have to um, approach them much more delicately as a picture book writer. Sure. And and even if I was writing for adults, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have the street cred to get away with some oh. of the things that, that Mark Twain can get away with. So... That was one of the most exciting things to me, because I think that those concepts can be distilled appropriately for children, but you do need you do need the, the proper cover to get away with it. Yeah. 
You said that the publisher um, allowed you to discard some things, did you? You, you? And you started with 16 pages of notes? It's 16 handwritten notes handwritten. in what was actually a pretty small notebook. So typed out, it was five pages? Yeah, four or five pages of, of typewritten notes for us to go by. And what we got was primarily... Um, like plot points. So this happens and this happens and this happens. What we didn't get was finished prose. And uh, when Aaron and I sat down on the very first day with the notes, they were we were already sort of marking it up with a red pen. Yeah. You know, there are things, you know, that we were very excited about that provided really great opportunities. And then there were also things where immediately we felt like, oh, like, this is a problem. Yeah, this is a problem. You might be a genius, Mark Twain, but... <sighs> But you know, you, we're actually the experts when it comes to children's literature, right. and you've kind of screwed up in in mm-hmm. this way or in this way. So you did. You scrapped a few things. We like. scrapped maybe one thing or two things, but we altered a few things, too. There was a main character oh. who was a kangaroo, and we specifically didn't want to make her a kangaroo. Yeah, that was a problem for us right away, because we really felt like um, the world that this book needed to exist in needed to be its own universe that was believable Mm -hmm. and uh if you have a main character that's a kangaroo this is going to sound silly and specific but if you have a main character that's a kangaroo you just set the book in australia yes and and that's just (laughs) the wrong place for this book to be it's also i think a little bit like how um comedy writers will sit in a room and and try to figure out the funniest word for the end of a joke um and kangaroo was too funny we needed it to be more (laughs) relatable we needed the so we changed the kangaroo to a skunk yeah and the skunk Mm -hmm. became one of the main characters the skunk is lovely very (laughs) dignified skunk um yeah i i really um i was kind of amazed at the true collaboration that I was seeing with uh, with Twain and I wonder how much um, how much input you were getting all along the way from the folks at it, this is at the Twain Trust yeah so there was um, Twain left no foundation or trust um, and so his archives are actually uh, or his Life's his life's work, his body of work. Yeah, is mm-hmm. was scattered a bit between his. Um, there's his house in Connecticut that has a Mark Twain museum, and you can walk around his house, which we were able to do, and they were very kind to us. Um, and they are the ones who, uh, I think, helped spur the project along once the notes were found. Um, there are his archives in Berkeley, and um, then there's his uh, house where he grew up, grew up in Hannibal, Missouri, and. Um, None of these places were necessarily affiliated with each other uh, until recently when this wonderful woman that we uh, were able to meet tried to get everybody to work together and unite so that uh, pretty pretty much in honor of Mark Twain. Um, So we we were given a blessing by them, uh, which was very kind of them because I don't think Phil and I really thought we deserved it. And then, <laughs> and then everybody left us completely alone. We worked on this thing in silence for two years. We didn't tell anybody about it. Yeah, uh, and then I think, a- as you know, and maybe some people that are listening will eventually know, the, the book took some really strange turns, and it became a very bizarre, oversized picture book um, that takes on a lot of um, 
interesting postures along the way. <laughs> yeah. So and, first of all, I guess we should say that most picture books are about 32 pages. And when we were tasked with this book, we told them up front, it can't be 32 pages. Mark Twain would have never written a book that short. Mm-hmm. Um, we're thinking it's going to be about 64. And then we end up turning it in, and it's about 150. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we we really assume that we were going to get kiboshed at that point. Right. And we were kind of okay with that. We kind of thought, we're just going to do it exactly how we want to do it. And if they're going to say no, that's fine. You know, we probably... We tried. We tried our best, and, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Um, but nobody ever said no. Everybody always said yes to everything we turned in. Yeah. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, I don't know. Well, you added things. You added some space. I mean, there are pages with no words and illustrations only, and pages that have, like you were saying before, not much scenery, but just right. a character. That's that- where Aaron really became the third and and maybe most important collaborator in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, we really, since we're picture book people, we're not novelists. We really wanted this book to function like a picture book, which was another thing that may have been foreign to Twain when he was writing. Um, picture books, as we think of them today, really didn't exist in the 1880s when he was telling this story. So we really felt like um, we could take his notes as a prompt, but if we really wanted to use our own expertise, we had to sort of modernize it into a picture book um, in, a, in a contemporary way. Mm-hmm. And Aaron is really the person that did that. Um, she's the one that paced out the text, decided, you know, this page needs a full block of text, this page needs no text, and that's how a picture book really comes together, is the the marriage of, of art and picture to make um, a seamless whole. And well, thanks, timing. Phil. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I was thinking we could hear the song Penguins. I don't think there's a penguin in in the Twain book. There's no, no penguin. penguins, unfortunately, but we're going to hear the penguin song and then uh, maybe a question from one of your younger readers. Sure. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> we'll talk more in a minute. listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is the Living Writers Show, and I'm Amanda Uli. Uh, we are here today with Phil and Aaron Stead. Phil, do you want to tell us what song we just heard? So that song was called Penguins by the brilliant Michael Hurley, and that song um, cracks me up every single time because he's not actually playing the trumpet. He's pretending to play the trumpet um, just with his own mouth. And every time I hear it, it's like the saddest song I've ever heard. But it's so ridiculous that... Yeah, if you think about him sitting there playing the trumpet with just humming, yeah, it's, it's the best. So, <laughs> something about that song just sort of gets to the heart of everything we try to do um, as artists. So it's a, it's a favorite in the Stead studio. Um, I'm glad we've got to hear, gotten to hear so many of the songs that are from your studio. It gives us a sense of how <laughs> you create and what you're listening to. Um, 
So I asked you earlier about audience, and we talked about young readers, um, and we have one with us, Beatrix Yuli. And she has a question. She's one of the few readers, I guess, of the new project, The Purloining of Prince Olio Margarine. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Yeah. I've been letting you all say it, but why don't you say it <laughs> yeah. again? You should let Phil say it, because that's technically his The Purloining his, uh, of Prince Olio title. Margarine. Yeah. Um, Beatrix Yuli, can you introduce yourself? Say hello. 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 <laughs> Do you have a question about the book that we, we've read recently? How in the world did the chicken come back? Okay, so this is an excellent question, actually. There is a, a chicken in this book, um, which was actually something that Aaron and I put into the text that was not in the original notes. Uh, but this chicken, who is named Pestilence and Famine, uh, became a very important character. Uh, the name actually came from... Uh, one of Mark Twain's cats. So Mark Twain had a series of cats throughout his life, and they always had peculiar names. So one was named Satan. He had a cat named Sour Mash, and then he had... Those are kind of harsh cat names. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were right? barn cats, though, but yeah. Yeah. But he loved them. And then he had a cat named Pestilence and Famine. And actually, we weren't sure if he had two cats, one named Pestilence and one named Famine, or just one cat, and it all depends on where you where you stand on the issue of the Oxford comma. Okay. So <laughs> it's we, always that. that right. always comes up. <laughs> so we thought it was funnier if it was one name, and so we turned it into one chicken. And this chicken was originally intended to just be sort of a joke in the first chapter, and the character kept coming back and coming back until eventually uh, Mark Twain, um, or like my character of Mark Twain, sort of kills off the chicken. And it was actually our editor who called us up and said, I really hope that the chicken can come back because I'm in love with this chicken. And I had not uh, not anticipated that the chicken would make a return. And so the entire ending of the book had to get sort of upended to get this chicken back into the story. And I really couldn't find a way for the chicken to come back in any way that made any sense. So I ended up just dropping the chicken right it's into sudden. the middle of the scene. Yes. Yeah. But it's she, she arrives. Yeah. yeah, she arrives <laughs> and nobody knows why and I don't explain it. <laughs> well, it's perfect. I think um, Beatrix is still here and I think it was our favorite part when this, the chicken suddenly returns back. Well, that will make our um, editor very happy. Good. <laughs> good. I will um, ask one more question and then I'm going to have you close it out. Um, do you have advice for aspiring young writers, whether they're as young as uh, Beatrix or or other aspiring picture book writers? Um, yes, I think a couple things. The, the first would be, uh, especially if you want to write, well, really if you want to write anything, but if you want to write picture books, you have to read a lot of picture books. And this is something that it, uh, somebody under the age of 10 would have no problem with. But a lot of adults that we meet that want to become picture book writers or artists uh, really haven't spent the time just reading and reading and reading. And it's important um, not just to read the things that you like, but also to read the things you don't like. I think you form more of your identity as an artist um, in opposition to things than you do sort of allying yourself. I think it's more difficult to find things that you actually enjoy than it is to find things that you don't like. And so sort of right. finding ways to bounce your own personality off the things that you don't like really sort of helps you become, I think, a better writer or a better artist. Yeah. And for me, I think it's just tell the story that you feel honest about. And that doesn't mean that you can't tell a wild story about a space alien and a, you know, 
I guess the easiest answer there is a cowboy. Um, but it, I, I just mean that, you know, base your story on something that you relate to. Everybody says write what you know. And I, I think I just, I mean more write what you, what you know. I, I mean, it sounds terribly cheesy, but in your heart, just, just be honest about it. Because uh, then people can relate to it. Such good, good advice for any writer, really. Um, yeah, I see... Um, we don't have much time left, but I uh, I see that I see your hearts in um, much of much of your writing. Whether it's really the to me really autobiographical stuff, like the ideas are all around, which is sitting here um, in the studio, or um, this new one, or others. So thank you for sharing that. Thank with you. Thanks us. for having me. Um, so Phil, we are closing out with one last song, and I wonder if you would introduce that for us. Sure. So uh, we finished this book up sort of uh, the Twain book, that is, in sort of a blaze of glory, well past our deadline. And uh, it was the week of the presidential election that Aaron had to finish the artwork for the cover of this book. And um, and what a week it was. What a week it was. And it was sort of a dark time in the studio. So we really kind of needed an extra pick-me-up. As a synopsis for the book, too, you should explain. Yeah, I should explain that the this book, book is accidentally political. Yeah, the, the book is accidentally very timely. It is in no way intentional. We were working on it. We began working on it three years ago. Twain began working on it in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. And yet it involves a misogynistic and xenophobic king who is looking to expel a min- minority class from his uh, fairy tale kingdom. And um, he's sort of in the habit of, of creating these we'll call them executive orders <laughs> uh, throughout the book. And it was just really odd how timely it suddenly all felt. And it just, it was interesting that Twain found a way to become relevant at a time when I think we really needed his voice. So anyhow, uh, long story short, it was just a sort of a dark time in the studio and we really needed to feel some extra energy. And so we, we turned, um, as I'm sure a lot of picture book artists did that week, <laughs> To public enemy, and uh, that's what you think of when you think about picture books. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. when people think of Amos McGee, Amos I want them to think yeah. of public enemy. <laughs> so here we go. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight.
to the first episode of Wolverine Hockey Wednesday. If you're tuning in live, you're listening to 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. If not, thank you for tuning in wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're going to preview the Michigan men's ice hockey season that is soon to get underway with an exhibition contest on Friday the 30th against Simon Fraser University. Excuse me, Saturday the 30th against Simon Fraser University. I'm your host, William Gregory, the Managing Director of WCBN Sports. Joined today by Connor Eargood, managing sports editor at the Michigan Daily and former member of its hockey beat, Owen Crane, executive board member of WCBN Sports and an out-and-out New England hockey guy, and soon to be joined by John Tondora, senior editor at the Michigan Daily and another former member of its hockey beat who has forgotten his backpack at the Intramural Sports Building. Rest but he in will, peace. He will soon join us. So guys, we're going to preview the Michigan men's ice hockey team. Ranked right now in uh, uh, the U.S. College Hockey Organization's uh, preseason number five after a, I would say, disappointing end of last season, at least for me and and Connor, having both made the trip out to Tampa um, and a loss to QPAC in the Frozen Four semifinal. The eventual national champion Bobcats, I will say. But this is a team now uh, with a lot of change, especially at the top. We all know superstar Adam Fantilli is off to the Columbus Blue Jackets after being selected third overall in the past entry draft. But you also lose a player like Mackie Samuskevich, who goes to the Carolina Hurricanes, um, and Luke Hughes as well, along with your starting goaltender and Eric Portillo. So 